When was the last time you heard someone present a prayer request that said something to the effect, John is doing really well spiritually, so let's pray for him. Have you ever heard someone present that kind of prayer request? Probably not very often. It's usually the other way. You know, Susie or Sally or Tom, he, he or she is not doing very well. We really need to pray for him or really need to pray for her. You see, we have wrongly come to believe that prayer is only for those who are doing poorly and especially if they are doing poorly in the physical realm. What I mean is, we ask for prayer for Uncle Joe's sore toe and Aunt Mary's sore knee and Bob's job situation and, and Sally's schooling, etc., etc. Now, I'm not implying that we shouldn't pray for people who are having physical difficulties, because we should. But that certainly should not be the exclusive focus of our prayers. We must remember to pray for people who are doing well spiritually, and we must remember to pray for eternal spiritual issues. We will see a great example of that in our text this morning. So let's turn again to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, if you are not already there. And our text for the next couple of weeks will be Paul's prayer for the Philippians in chapter 1. So please follow along as I read this prayer for us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. <clears throat> and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. One of the things that strikes you about this prayer when you read it is that it is not long. That also contradicts a common belief among Christians, namely that for prayer to be effective, for prayer to be meaningful, it must be long. This prayer is not long, but very meaningful, very focused, and right on target. This prayer, like Paul's prayers for other believers in the New Testament, is a prayer for spiritual growth. If you have studied the New Testament for any length of time, then you know that the Apostle Paul had a deep passion to see the people of God mature. Everywhere you turn in his letters, it comes out in one way or another. For example, in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he outlined the Lord's divine pattern for the church and for ministry when he said this, and he himself, referring to Jesus, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So Jesus' will for his church is that the saints be matured and equipped with the word of God so they can be ministers of Jesus Christ. A while back I was given a copy of a study that was done by the Institute for American Church Growth. I don't know how reputable that group is in their ministry, but 
I did find the results of their survey fascinating. The study was done to determine how people come to faith in Christ and then how they are plugged into a church, get involved in the life of a church. So what, what are the contributing factors or what are they in general in, in those types of circumstances? Here, was the, the result, here were the results of the poll. How do people come to faith in Christ and then find, get plugged into a church? A special need in their lives? Two to three percent of the people fall into that category. Sunday schools? Four to five percent. Visitation or cold calls? One to two percent. People just walking in, deciding to visit, coming in off the streets? Three to four percent. Evangelistic crusades? 0.001%. The pastor making personal contact, 3 to 5%. A friend or a relative reaching out, 75 to 90%. Now, even if that is off somewhat, it still perfectly illustrates the point. God knows that people are reached through people who will reach out and befriend them and minister to them. That is why God wants the saints to be matured and equipped with the Word of God to do the work of the ministry. That was the passion of Paul's life. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, he said, We preach Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, so that we may present every man perfect or mature, fully equipped in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working that works in me mightily. That's not the only verse where Paul tells us that he gave maximum effort to the task of maturing the saints because it was the passion of his heart. He wasn't the only one to understand this priority. When the apostle Peter closed out his final, final letter, he closed with these parting words. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 Peter, too, shared Paul's desire for God's people to grow and to mature and to learn. In fact, to show you how strong of a drive this was in Paul's life, look with me at Galatians chapter 4. Back to the left, just two letters. Prior to the book of Ephesians, Galatians chapter 4. And notice the intensity of this language here. Galatians 4 verse 19. Paul says to the Galatians, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Paul describes his burden, his, his passion like that of a woman in labor. That is strong language to express what was in the deepest recesses of Paul's heart. And because it was there, it came out in his prayers. You see, beloved, the deepest desires in your heart will come out in your prayers. That's why you, you can't just read a book about how to pray and all of a sudden be biblical in your praying. That's why you can't just hear a sermon on prayer and be the kind of prayer warrior you ought to be. Or you can't just go to a seminar on prayer and all of a sudden pray like Paul did. Prayer is the expression of what we are on the inside. 
Now, that's not to say that books, sermons, seminars on prayer can't be helpful, because certainly they can. But they are most helpful when they deal with the heart of the issue, and the heart of the issue is the heart. Whenever Paul told believers what he was praying for them, and you know from his letters, he did that often. He could tell people exactly what he was praying for them. The Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians. And whenever he told them what he was praying for them, he was at the same time telling them what his desire was for them spiritually. His prayers were the expression of his heart. But he wasn't the only one to pray like he did. Colossians 4.12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Epaphras is one of the unsung heroes of the New Testament, in my opinion. Hardly anybody today would know the guy's name. But he had a shepherd's heart. He prayed for the spiritual growth and progress and maturity of God's people, and that's what Paul prayed for when he prayed. We've seen this many times in the past in our studies in Scripture. Check out Paul's prayers in Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Philemon, and you will see that Paul prayed for the spiritual progress of God's people. I know I've said this in the past, but I have to say it again, beloved. We must, please hear me, we must learn to pray for the spiritual progress of God's people. I've been to prayer meetings for almost 35 years now in various places around the U.S. and around the world, and rarely have I been involved in ones where the focus was the same as the focus we see in Paul's prayers recorded in the New Testament. So all that to say, we need the challenge of Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1. We need to digest and assimilate this prayer and what is behind it, which is one of the reasons why I plan to spend two weeks on it and not just one. So let's go back to Philippians chapter 1 and consider Paul's prayer that he recorded for the believers in the church at Philippi. (coughs) You will remember that back in verse 4, Paul mentioned that he prayed for the Philippians. Now in verse 9, he's going to tell them what he prayed for them. Paul knew exactly what he prayed for these believers. I find that interesting. I also find it convicting. The the capacity of this man to love so many people that he could say to the Colossians, here's what I'm praying for you. And to the Philippians, here's what I'm praying for you. And to the Thessalonians, here's what I'm praying for you. The the burden, the passion of this man's heart is, is challenging. Paul knew exactly what he prayed for these believers. And Paul, noticed he didn't just pray in generalities. In other words, he didn't say, Lord, bless the Philippians. You know how we do that. Lord, bless the missionaries over there. He had specific issues on his heart that he wanted to see become a reality in the lives of the Philippians. He was, he was very observant. And as a result, he prayed specifically for certain issues. That's just the way Paul was. He knew the strengths and the weaknesses of the people he shepherded, so he prayed very specifically and not in vague generalities. In this prayer, as we'll see, Lord willing, over two weeks, he mentions five specifics that he was praying for them. Love, excellence, 
integrity, good works, and glory. Love, excellence, integrity, good works, and glory. And these things are sequential. That is, they go from one to the other. They build on each other. They are progressive. Notice that the starting point is love. Can I ask you to do something right here? Please do, do not tune out. The reason I say that is because my guess is you have probably heard so much about the subject of love from the Bible that you've become somewhat numb to it so that now you just tune it out and drift off in your thoughts. Don't do that. This is extremely important to God. Whenever we consider the subject of Christian maturity, we tend to measure it by how much Bible knowledge a person has or how a person prays or attendance at Christian functions or maybe what kind of spiritual gift a person has or depth of theological understanding or the style of worship someone embraces. Those are the kinds of things we usually connect with or associate with spiritual maturity. But time and time again in the pages of His Word, God measures Christian maturity by love. Genuine, sincere love. Jesus said that the first and great commandment is to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. In John 13, 35, Jesus said this quality should distinguish us as His disciples. It should mark us out. It should set us apart. Love is the first element listed in the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, etc. But the first is love. It is the greatest of the three great virtues mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, Love believes all things and hopes all things. So love encompasses faith and hope. It is the indispensable quality to every spiritual gift, whether it be languages, prophecy, knowledge, faith, sacrifice, or martyrdom, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. All too often when we list the elements of orthodoxy or the fundamentals of the faith, we leave out the all-important issue of love. But I want us to notice that Paul starts with it as the first issue. When Paul begins to tell the Philippians what he prayed for them, the first issue is love. Notice verse 9. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. I remember years ago being in a Bible study group, and we went through the book of Philippians, and when we encountered this, we began to debate back and forth whether this request of Paul was that the Philippians' love for God would increase or their love for others would increase. Notice Paul doesn't specify the object of this love. He simply says, I'm praying that your love would abound more and more. Why doesn't he specify the object? Listen to what Dr. Dwight Pentecost has written. Quote, the, the apostle does not pray that they might love him. He does not pray that they might love one another. He does not even pray that they might love the Lord Jesus Christ more and more and that they might go deeper and deeper into the heart of God. He prays for an abounding love. In this, he is not praying concerning the object of their 
affection. He is praying concerning their character. To put it simply, he is saying, I am praying that you might be more loving, that more and more you might be characterized by love. End quote. You see, Paul was praying for their character. If Paul had specified the object of this love, it would have been very easy for the Philippians to focus on doing things. Oh, Paul is praying for us to love God more. That means we need to do A, B, C, D. Oh, he's praying for us to love one another more, so we need to do you know, X, Y, Z. But Paul's concern was not for them to simply crank out actions. Paul's concern was for their character. His concern was, was what was inside. He prayed that they would be characterized by love more and more. Paul exemplified this in his own life. He had a passionate love for the Lord God. He had a passionate love for Christ. He had a passionate love for the people of God. He had a passionate love for the lost. His own Jewish kinsmen, he said on one occasion in the book of Romans, I could wish myself accursed from Christ if they would just be saved. Paul had a heart of love. In verse 8, the verse just prior to this, he opens up his heart to give a glimpse of his great love. He says, God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So he modeled what he taught. He modeled what he prayed about, which brings up an interesting point. Oftentimes, the things you pray about for others become a greater reality in your own life. Have you ever noticed that? For example, when you are praying for someone to be more loving then you are more conscious of and aware of your own need to be more loving. When you are praying for someone to be more faithful in serving God, then you are more conscious of and aware of your need to be faithful in serving the Lord. When you are praying for someone to be more holy, then you are more conscious of and aware of your need to be holy. When you are praying for someone to be more honest, then you are more conscious of and aware of your need to be honest. When you are praying for someone to be more patient, you are more conscious of and aware of your need to be patient. And you could just continue to list the specifics when you are praying for someone to be more thoughtful. You are more conscious of and aware of your need to be thoughtful. When you are praying for someone to be more sensitive, just again, you can continue listing the items. When you are praying for someone to be a better spouse, you're more conscious of and aware of your need to be a better spouse. When you're praying for someone to be more open to his or her blind spots, then you're more conscious of and aware of your need to be open to your own blind spots. Whatever the specific is, it has this sort of reciprocal effect in our own lives. That's one of the reasons, not the only, but one of the reasons why selfless prayer on behalf of others is so healthy for us as the family of God. Paul prayed for others, and it was the continual reminder, it was a continual reminder to him to seek to be what he prayed for others to be. He was loving, and he prayed for the Philippians to abound more and more in love. Now, it would be easy to assume when we read verse 9 here, especially since the very first thing Paul prayed about was love, it would be easy to assume that Paul had concerns about these people and their love. Nothing could be further from the truth. Don't assume from this statement that this church had a problem with love or that Paul was concerned about their love. 
We saw earlier in this series that the Philippians were very loving people. If we had the time, we could go back to Acts chapter 16, where we have the record of this church's beginning. And we could read that as soon as Lydia became a Christian, she was the very first one there in Philippi, she urged Paul and his partners to become her house guests. She took care of them, housed them. As soon as the jailer became a Christian, he bathed and soothed the wounds of Paul and Silas who were in prison. Even after Paul left, the Philippians continued their expressions of love. In fact, they continued to demonstrate their love for the ten years that had come and gone between Paul's original visit and the writing of this letter. This group of people was unique among the other churches of the New Testament time. So don't assume... Don't assume from verse 9 that they had a problem with love. They were unique, actually, in their love. Paul even says this over in chapter 4. Just skip over a few pages and notice what he says near the end of this letter. Notice what he says about their love and their thoughtfulness and their generosity and all of this. He says as he winds down, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and, and to uh, be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you have shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church, notice that, no other church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus. That is the man they sent to Paul to minister to him from their own midst. I have received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So the point is this. These were very loving people, very thoughtful, very considerate. So again I say in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul is not praying that they would learn to love He is not praying that they they would start loving. He is not expressing a concern. They already loved. Paul just prayed that they would love more and more and more. This reminds me of what he said over in 1 Thessalonians 4. Just keep turning to the right past Colossians to the next letter. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. Paul says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. I don't need to remind you about this. Paul is saying, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Now, it would be easy to stop right there. You're doing well. And then he adds, but we urge you, brethren, that you would increase more and more. Every time I read one of Paul's statements like this, it reminds me of a young person playing football. I can still hear my coaches in my ear yelling, you you know, you're doing well, but you can do better. Just pushing, driving, excel. Don't be content. Don't think, oh, I'm fine. I'm, you know, I got this down. Just keep excelling, keep driving. 
That's what Paul is saying. You, you do love each other, but we urge you that you increase more and more. This is what Paul is referring to in Philippians 1.9. The Philippians were a loving group of people. This was a loving church. But, beloved, understand there's always room for increase. That's why you and I can't pass this off. We can't say, oh, I know this is important. I, I've studied this in the past. You know, I, I, I've, I've learned this. There's always room for increase in love. Always, always, always. So Paul says in Philippians 1.9, this is what I'm praying for you, Philippians. When I pray for you, you need to know what I'm praying. This I pray, that your love may abound more and more. The love Paul refers to in Philippians 1.9 is the love of choice. It's not the love of impulse. It's the love of choice. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave. We could easily miss the meaning of that statement because we tend to emphasize the word so. God so loved the world. Like, it was so much. That's really not the Greek word there. The word so is in this way or in this manner. God loved the world this way or in this manner. Here's how God loved the world. God loved the world in this way. He gave. That doesn't mean that God was overwhelmed with emotion for us. It doesn't mean he couldn't help but love us. That's not it at all. But that's how many people define love. Some man comes home and says to his wife, I'm divorcing you because I fell in, some, fell in love with someone else and I just couldn't help it. That's not love. Certainly not divine love. Divine love can help it because it's the love of choice. It's the love of volition. It's the love of the will. That's the kind of love the Bible commands and the kind of love Paul prays for the Philippians to abound in more and more. Here's the point. Christian love is far more than just emotion. It has an emotional aspect. Don't, don't misunderstand me. We don't ever want to define love as sans emotion. In other words, minus emotion. It has an emotional aspect to it. We don't want to define love as, as if we are just robots, we're machines. It has an emotional aspect to it, but it is far more than that. It's not dependent on emotion. Therefore, in verse 9, Paul adds another phrase to describe the kind of love he is praying about for the Philippians. Notice Philippians 1.9, he says, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. He doesn't put a period there. He says, in knowledge. That's interesting. Love and knowledge are not opposites, as some people think. They actually go hand in hand, or they should go hand in hand. This understanding contradicts the very popular concept today where people think it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you love. That's absolutely wrong. In Romans 10.2, Paul said, that the Jewish people have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're very zealous. They will do all of these rituals, carry out all of these regulations. They have a zeal for God, but it's, it's misguided. It's misplaced. There's no virtue in that. There's no virtue in misguided love or misdirected love or ignorant love. If you love someone, you want to learn more about that person. That's how healthy relationships develop. 
So Paul qualifies the kind of love he's referring to here in Philippians 1.9 with the word knowledge. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge. Interestingly, this Greek word is used 20 times in the New Testament. And it always refers to knowledge of the things of God or theological knowledge. That is what feeds our love. Spiritual knowledge feeds genuine love. The more you know about God, then the more you should love Him. The more you know about God, the more you should love His people. The more we comprehend the love of God toward us, unworthy as we are, the more we ought to love Him, and the more we can love others around us who are just as imperfect as we are. So I'll say it again. Spiritual knowledge feeds Genuine Christian love. To become a Christian, you must come to know the truth, according to 1 Timothy 2.4. And to grow as a Christian, you must continue to learn the truth, according to Colossians 1.10. Look at the very next letter after Philippians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Here's another one of Paul's prayers, a recorded prayer. And he says, I'm praying for you, verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. Here we go. And increasing in the knowledge of God. Why did Paul pray that? That they would increase in the knowledge of God? Because ignorance is often a root cause of stunted growth. A lack of application can be another root cause. But but understand, you can't apply what you don't know. You can't act on biblical principles you are ignorant of. So spiritual knowledge feeds genuine Christian love for God and for others. That is one of the reasons why I'm so committed to the exposition of Scripture Sunday after Sunday. It's not enough for us to just sing about loving God, as important as that is. It's not enough just to sing about loving God and say we love God. Or it certainly wouldn't do any good for me to browbeat all of us every week by saying, we don't love God enough. You ought to love God more. That doesn't, that's, that's emotion without content, and it dries up in time. Spiritual knowledge feeds true love. Our love is to be fed by and regulated by Scripture. That is why it is so ridiculous to hear, and, and I'm sure you hear this often as I do, it is so ridiculous To hear someone involved in an immoral relationship say something to the effect, well, it must be right because God gave us the love for each other. Listen, God doesn't give that kind of love. True love, genuine love, is controlled by the Word of God and is fed by spiritual knowledge. So in Philippians 1.9, Paul prays for the Philippians that their love would abound still more and more in knowledge. But we all know that knowledge without application doesn't do any good either. We all know people who have a lot of knowledge, a lot of head knowledge, but for whatever reason it doesn't come out in life. So Paul adds another qualifier. Go back to Philippians 1 and notice the final phrase in verse 9. He says, "In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge. Again, he doesn't put a period there. He doesn't stop. And all discernment. 
This is a word that emphasizes insight in order to make proper decisions. So it's a, it's a word that carries the idea of action or application of knowledge. Paul links knowing the truth with applying the truth to life. You can't apply biblical principles you don't know, but on the other hand, if you don't apply biblical principles you do know, you're really no better off. In some ways, the Christian life is very basic, very simple. God wants us to ask, what does the Bible teach? And then, how does God want this to affect my life? It's that simple. What is, the, what is this, whatever passage we happen to be reading or studying, what does this passage say? What does it mean? And then what does it mean to me? The first question in Bible study is not what does this mean to me. First question is what does this mean? Period. What is this saying? What is God saying? And then when I understand what God is saying, how does this apply to my life? How should it affect my life? Failure to do either one of those thwarts the growth process and cuts off the flow of love. True knowledge is knowledge that has been passed through the mind, into the heart, and out into lifestyle. The Christians in the book of Hebrews evidently failed to grasp that. I want you to look at what the writer says to them in chapter 5. Turn over to the right near the end of the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 11, Paul, uh, not Paul, Paul I don't think is the writer of this book. The writer of Hebrews has been talking about, just in the verses just prior to this, Melchizedek. The character from the Old Testament, from the book of uh, Genesis there. And he says, uh, concerning this topic, verse 11, of whom, speaking of Melchizedek, or of which, speaking of the Melchizedekian priesthood, however you want to render that, of whom or of which we have much to say and hard to explain. Now at this point we probably would expect the writer to say, because this is so deep, or this is so technical, or this is so, you know, I mean, this is so obscure. I mean, how many people know Melchizedek from the book of Genesis? We know about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but Melchizedek, who is it? But that's not what he says. He surprises us. He doesn't say, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain because it's so deep or so obscure. He says, since you have become dull of hearing. Notice that, become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Twice now the writer has said, you have become this. In other words, there was a time when actually you were doing better spiritually. You were, more, you, were, you were healthier spiritually. But now you've become hard of hearing. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, those who are mature. That is, those who, now again, the writer surprises us. Because we probably would expect him to say, those who have a lot of knowledge, those who are really smart, those who have a, have a high IQ. That's not what he says. He says, those who by reason of use, those who by reason of practice, 
have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Beloved, look at this passage. Look at what it's saying. Discernment doesn't come just by taking in data. Discernment doesn't come just by taking in information. It doesn't come just by taking in spiritual knowledge. You have to use it. You have to apply it. You have to act on it. You have to practice it. You have to ask yourself, what are the practical implications for my life? What needs to change? What do I need to adjust? Both elements together form the perfect combination for a growing love. Knowledge and discernment. A common expression in our day is love is blind. Love is not blind. Love, genuine love, biblical love is an intelligent love, not an indiscriminate love. In fact, I think it would be accurate to say one of the sure marks of maturity in the Christian life is discerning love. William Hendrickson writes this, quote, A person who possesses love but lacks discernment may reveal a great deal of eagerness and enthusiasm. He may donate to all kinds of causes. His motives may be worthy and his intentions honorable. Yet, he may be doing more harm than good. End quote. He's right. It is heartbreaking to see someone, uh, well-meaning people, trying to show their love for God and their love for others, give money to people or organizations who actually work against the true work of God. But the people who are supporting them sometimes are well-meaning people, yet they lack discernment. Paul didn't want that kind of thing to happen, so he prayed for the Philippians to have an increasing love coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment. These things enable us to love God more. These things enable us to love others more. And that's why Paul included them in his prayer. He wanted the Philippians to love more. And if thorough knowledge and discernment enable us to love more, then it makes sense that Paul would include them as a part of his prayer. Now back to Philippians chapter 1 as we wind down this morning. As you can see, Paul is going to go on from here and delineate some of the other elements of spiritual maturity. This is just verse 9. The first part of his prayer. He mentions some more specifics in verse 10, verse 11. In fact, he gives four more. But what I want us to notice this morning is that this is the foundation. This is the starting point. This is, this is the, the bedrock for spiritual development. It all, it's all built on and flows from an increasing love coupled with thorough knowledge and discernment. And the very, the very fact that God recorded this prayer in inspired Scripture shows us that He wants the same things for us. You could say it this way. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit is still praying these very things for us. The Holy Spirit is praying this for us. Since that's the case, then, beloved, we need to pray these things for one another. And we need to do our part to see to it that these things are a reality in our lives. You see, we do have a part to play in this. Just because this is a prayer to God doesn't mean that He's going to do it all and we don't have any part to play. 
Remember, elsewhere in Scripture, we are commanded to love. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are commanded to grow in knowledge. 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are commanded to be discerning. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are commanded to apply the truth we learn. So we have a part, but we can never forget that it's God who provides the enablement. So this is the starting point. This is the foundation. This is how we should pray. So let's bow together with that in mind. And as you bow your head, close your eyes. We have a few minutes remaining here at the end of our time together. And I would encourage you right now, as the Lord brings someone to your heart, maybe it's someone sitting near you or someone far away, to pray this for that person. You can do that right now in the, in, in the quietness of your own heart. Other Christians that you know, another Christian friend or family member or several, pray this. Pray that their love would abound more and more. But not only that, not just love, but a love in knowledge, a knowledgeable love and a discerning kind of love. Pray that for people who are on your heart this morning, people who are in your mind. Father, thank you for challenging us concerning prayer. We, we need this. We really do. It's probably one of the areas of the Christian life with which we struggle most, if we were to be transparent and honest about it. It's very very difficult for us to be consistent in prayer, to be devoted to prayer. And then even if we are, it's not always easy to be biblical in our praying. We could pray about things that are important, certainly, but leave out things that are most important. So when it comes to prayer, may we be instructed by and challenged by your word and the examples of prayer that we see and the focus of prayer that we see in your word. And as we've seen this morning, we need to pray for others. We need to pray for one another that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. We need to pray for one another's character, that we would be internally what we ought to be, and then what we need to do externally will follow. Teach us to pray like this. And in closing, we we want to pray for anyone who is here with us this morning who really can't pray to you, Father, in this manner because they can't even, at at this point, address you as Father. They have no relationship with you because they have no relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. So even now, this very moment, as we are bowed together in prayer, may the Holy Spirit stir their hearts and may they pray But may their prayer be like that man of whom Jesus spoke, who when he went to the temple on one occasion simply said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A prayer of humility, a prayer of repentance. May that be their prayer, that they would humble themselves before you this very moment. Pray for your forgiveness. Pray for your salvation pray for a new start in life that is found only in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.